Very grateful for your presence this morning. It looks like we have maybe a few more than we had last week, and so we're glad that you're able to be here. I know that this is a difficult circumstance for many people, and there are a lot of fears, but we're very grateful that we have made it to the point that we're able to assemble together on Sunday morning, and we're so grateful that you're here today, and we pray nothing but the best for you and your family, and we pray that God will richly bless you. It is, as Jared said a moment ago, it's great to be together, and uh, we're glad to have the dies with us today as a married couple, uh, the junior dies, I guess I should say. But we are glad that you're here and hope and pray that you have a wonderful marriage together. We're looking today at Ephesians chapter 1. And as you read the book of Ephesians, you know it exalts the church of Christ, the blood-bought body of Jesus Christ. Someone has said about the book of Ephesians that it literally takes us from eternity to eternity. And I think that's really a great way to sum up this book. And what Paul does is remind us that God chose to redeem the human family through Jesus before He ever made the world. That is a breathtaking thought in and of itself. So what I want us to do today is to think for a moment or two about God's plan to redeem man. And the beauty of that is God chose to redeem us. God made provisions for those of us who belong to the human family. And it is through Him that we have the hope of life eternal. And so when you look at the book of Ephesians, as was said a moment ago, you can see why Paul pictures the redemptive plan of God. And Paul says that this plan literally takes us from eternity to eternity. So let's think about what Paul says. I want to begin by talking first and foremost about this plan of redemption. And I want you to pick up with me in verse 3 of chapter 1, the passage that Ben read a moment ago. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word blessed here. This term really is like the term that we use, eulogy. What it means is to speak well of. In this instance, Paul is describing God and the fact that we praise Him for His intrinsic nature, His intrinsic goodness. God is the source of all blessings. This term is found, another place this term is found would be, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, the God of all comfort. So we praise God in that context because He is the one who provides comfort for our hurting hearts. In this instance, Paul is saying that we praise God, we speak well of God, because it is His plan that has ultimately been brought to fruition that redeems us. So listen again. Paul would say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul here simply saying that all spiritual blessings 
reside in one place. That one place is in Christ. The heavenly places would be that spiritual domain, so to speak. And so in verse 4, he would say, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This takes us back prior to the creation, doesn't it? You remember, for example, John in Revelation chapter 13 would talk about the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. Well, that's what Paul is talking about here. This plan predates creation. And so he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now look at verse 5. Paul said, having predestined us to adoption. The word predestined here, some translations may say foreordained. And the word means to determine beforehand, to predetermine. And what Paul is saying is God foreordained or He predetermined. He determined beforehand to save not specific individuals, but rather He chose to save beforehand a class of people. The class of people that God chose to save, to redeem, are those who were in Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is that God, before He ever created the world, drew up a plan by which man would be saved. This divine plan would also encompass not just the sending of Christ, but also the establishment of the church of Christ. Turn over, if you would, to chapter 3 for a minute. Listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 9. To make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished or purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you look at, back at Ephesians chapter 1, down in verse 8, he would talk about how God made to abound toward us all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will. Now, a mystery is typically, typically that which has been concealed. And so you think back to the great promises of God, beginning with Genesis chapter 12, when God said to Abraham, in you shall all families of the earth be blessed. That, that promise was made to the patriarchs, wasn't it? The prophets began to foretell of all the great promises that would ultimately be realized in whom? In Christ. Today, that mystery that had been concealed is now revealed, isn't it? One of, one of the things that Paul talks about the mystery of His will would have to do with the Gentiles being a part of the body of Christ in Ephesians chapter 3 and about verse 6. But nonetheless, God is the one that designed this plan. He is the architect, so to speak. And so He said, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. Think about that for a minute. When man sinned in the Garden of Eden, what happened? Separation. 
And so Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? To reconcile the two parties together. God on the one hand, creation on the other. So herein lies this great plan of redemption. But there's a second thing Paul points out. First, the plan of redemption. Secondly, the person of redemption. Note again what Paul said, that God predestined or foreordained us to adoption. You remember over in 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter talks about how we have been redeemed not by corruptible things like silver and gold, but rather by the precious blood of Christ. He said, whom God foreordained before the world began, but has been manifest in these last times for you who believe in God, and so on. But note if you would, Paul said God predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. And then look at verse 7. Paul said, in Him we have redemption through His blood. Emphasis on Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now I said just a moment ago, the book of Ephesians really emphasizes the church of Christ. The book of Colossians emphasizes the exalted Christ. And you see how those two books, woven together, picture for us God's divine redemptive plan. On the one hand, you have the Christ. On the other hand, you have the church of Christ, which exists according to God's eternal plan. So what about Jesus? You know, when we talk about salvation and the hope that we have, this plan... This plan rested upon one person, didn't it? Did Jesus Christ not answer the call to redeem us? Do you remember the psalmist back in Psalm 40? David said, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Quoting, or rather David made that statement, the Hebrew writer quotes it in chapter 10 of his book. And the idea is, in the volume of the book, it's written about me. I come, O Lord, to do your will. Well, what was God's will to save man? You remember the angel in Matthew chapter 1? The angel tells us that Jesus would save His people from their sins. John the Baptist said of the Christ in John 1, 29, that the Lamb of God came to take away the sin of the world, didn't He? Matthew said he came to give his life a ransom. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Paul would say the same thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He came to be a ransom for all in verse 5. The Bible says that Jesus, the very Son of God, tasted death for every man, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. There's something exclusive about Christ, isn't there? Now think about the world in which we live today. We live today in what could best be described as a pluralistic world. And the idea of absolutes, divine truth, the idea that there is one body, one system of truth wherein people are saved is viewed by many as just not true. Well, what was it Jesus said you remember what Jesus said in John 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? 
No man comes unto the Father but by me. Would you say that's exclusive? Would you say that is narrow? Would you say that Jesus is our only access to the Father? What was it Paul said? In Him we have redemption. Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 12 of Acts, Neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. What Luke is saying is the exclusive means of salvation is Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only way. He is the perfect embodiment of divine truth, isn't He? If we are to, if we are to access salvation, then it is going to be through Jesus Christ, isn't it? There is a third thought I want to share with you. We talk about God's plan of redemption and God's person of redemption, that being Jesus, the Son of God. And really, if you go back and look at the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the coming of whom? The Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, Jesus. The New Testament revolves around one man, doesn't it? This morning in Bible class, we were talking about Paul. And we made the statement that when you look at Scripture in terms of having an impact for the cause of Christ, I don't know of anyone other than Paul that made the impact on the lives of people and continues to impact the lives of people like that man. But Jesus... Jesus, the Son of God, stands head and shoulders above everyone, doesn't He? Paul served the Lord. But Jesus came to serve us, didn't He? He came to empty Himself, to go to the cross, to die for our sins. So we talk about God's price of redemption. You need to under we need to understand something. When we talk about redemption... And God's plan to redeem man, it was not cheap. Listen now to what Paul said. In Him, or in whom we have redemption, through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace. Could I ask you a question? What was the catalyst behind Christ coming into the world? Why did Jesus come to earth? I mean, when it's all said and done and the smoke clears, why did Jesus come to earth? Why would God give His Son for us? I can tell you why. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, but God who is rich in mercy, listen to him, for the great love wherewith He loved us even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved. God loves us, doesn't He? God loves everyone. And what Paul is saying is, when it comes to our redemption and the hope that we have, the cost of our redemption was not cheap. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to go to Washington. It might be the case that you have a relative or 
maybe somebody that your, that your family knew. Or it might be a friend whose name is inscribed on that wall of honor. Honoring those great patriots of the past who literally gave their lives on the battlefield. They paid the price for the freedom we enjoy in this country. As a parent, had you lost a child on the battlefield, would you say that you have skin in the game when it comes to the freedom we enjoy? The answer would be yes, wouldn't it? Would you not take it as an affront if someone minimized the cost of the sacrifice of your child on the battlefield? Again, the answer would be yes. What we need to understand is Christ, as Paul said, died for our sins. And the purchase price was His blood. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the blood of my family, it's precious. It's something special. And the Bible says, God who spared not His own Son, but freely gave Him up for us all. That is special. Didn't Paul say in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that Jesus purchased the church, listen to Him, with His own blood. Paul said, Paul said, that Jesus literally shed His blood for us. And Peter said we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, the sinless Son of God. So the cost of our redemption was not cheap. And the means by which we enjoy salvation today is Jesus. The catalyst, as I said a moment ago, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. We have, been, we have been saved because God has graciously provided for us a means of salvation, hasn't He? Didn't He say, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is there any way that we could somehow earn our salvation, merit it? No. But rather, God has freely blessed us with the provisions of redemption. And so when we respond in faith and obedience, we enjoy the blessings associated with the blood of Jesus. So Paul said, it's in Christ that we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins. Now, that brings me to a fourth thought about this verse or about this text. And that is the place of redemption. And we talked about the plan of redemption, the person of redemption, the price of redemption. But what about the place of redemption? Listen again to what Paul said. In Him, in whom we have redemption through His blood. The word redemption, the word redeemed, means to buy back. Do you remember Jesus said, do you remember the Bible says in, for example, in Titus chapter 2, that Jesus came to redeem us from all iniquity. 
He came to literally buy us back. We as members of the human family, living in sin, and here is Jesus who came and shed His blood to buy us back so that we might enjoy reconciliation. And Paul is saying, you need to understand something. That it's in Christ that we enjoy the blessings of redemption. It's in Christ that we have the forgiveness of our sins. Now the word forgiveness here, it means to send away. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. You remember back in Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement? And the Bible talks about how there would be blood shed by the high priest on behalf of the people. And that blood anticipated or prefigured the coming of Christ. But in that same context, Moses, in recording this, talks about the high priest who would take what was called a scapegoat. And he would lay his hands upon the head of that scapegoat. And then he would confess the sins of the people on the head of that scapegoat. And the Bible says that that scapegoat would be taken out into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. Well, what did that represent? What did that symbolize? The sending away, the removal of sin from the camp. All right, now we know that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But when Jesus came and died on Calvary, what Paul is saying is, in Jesus Christ, we enjoy redemption, liberation through His blood, and we have the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, our sins are literally removed. They're sent away. We don't have to see them anymore, do we? Didn't Jeremiah talk about that in chapter 31 in, in his book? When he talked about God would establish a new covenant? And didn't the Hebrew writer say, with regard to that covenant, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness? And then he went on to say, and their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. Well, why is that? Because they've been purged, they've been removed, sent away, hurled, as we would say, into infinity. Listen to David in Psalm 103. He said, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. The idea is, we don't have to see them again. So what Paul is saying here, regarding this great plan that God devised, that He designed, this plan hinged upon the willingness of Christ to come and die for us. And because Jesus was willing to go to the cross and effect our salvation... Now we have a place, we have provisions where we can enjoy forgiveness. Now I don't know about you, but there are things that I have done in my life that I just as soon not, to ha not, not have to deal with anymore. There are things in my life that I'm glad are in the past. There are things in my life I do not want to be dredged up. I don't know about you, but that's how I feel. Well, that's the beauty of forgiveness, isn't it? We're not talking about what's in the past. What we're talking about is the present. The past is immaterial if the present is right. 
Didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. He said, behold, all things become new. You got a new life, don't you? You don't have to worry about the past. You don't have to deal with the past. You don't have to worry about God on the day of judgment dredging up the past. We're going to be judged on the basis of what we've done. Paul said that. He said, according to what we've done, whether good or bad. Solomon would say it would also include every secret thing. And all he's saying there is, there won't be any secrets on the day of judgment. Not going to be any skeletons in the closet. That closet's going to be opened up and everything's going to be out on the table. Ah, but there's a provision. If we enjoy the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus, then what the Bible says is we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So you mean redemption is in Christ. That's right. But not only is redemption in Christ, reconciliation is also in Christ, isn't it? And listen, it is exclusively in one place. It's in the church of Christ. Well, how do I know that? Well, just turn over to chapter 2. And read with me what Paul said in verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both. Who is the both? Jews and Gentiles. That he might reconcile them both to God, listen to him, in one body. What is the one body? Well, just look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. He put all things in subjection under His feet, made Him to be head over all things to the church. Listen to Him. Which is His body. All right, Paul, reconciliation is in the body. That's right. Redemption is in Christ. That's exact. That's exactly right. How many bodies then are there, Paul? Listen to what Paul said, Ephesians 4, verse 4. Turn over and look at it with me if you would. Paul said there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, through all, and in you all. Remember I said just a moment ago that when we talk about redemption and salvation, there are some today that would say, you know what, when we talk about salvation being exclusive to Christ, they would say, that's narrow-minded. Some would say, in this pluralistic age, they just don't see how that could be the case. Well, the Bible says there's just one God, and there's just one Lord, and one Father. And just as there is one God and Father of all, just as there is one Lord, there's just one church. Well, when was that church established? On Pentecost Day. Well, where was it established? In the city of Jerusalem, according to what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Do you remember what he said? The word of the Lord would go forth from where? From Jerusalem. So you mean to tell me that when we talk about the place of redemption, the place of redemption is in Christ, that's right. The place of redemption is not just in Christ, it is in the church of Christ. 
Now you need to understand, I'm not talking about any kind of denominational body. The church of Christ, the church that I read about in Scripture, predates denominationalism. It is pre-denominational, it is non-denominational. There were no denominations in the first century. You go back in the first century, and if we had had the opportunity to begin interviewing those people on Pentecost Day, and if we had asked them, okay, what church do you now belong to? What would they have said? The church? Church of God? Church of Christ? They knew nothing about modern-day denominationalism as we know today. Not one thing. So you mean to tell me that we're talking about salvation being in Christ? Yes, salvation's in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. And listen, the only way to access the salvation that is in Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Ephesians 4, 4, Paul talks about the one body, the one spirit. In verse 5, he talks about the one baptism. The one baptism puts us into the one body. You remember Acts chapter 2? When those people obeyed the gospel on Pentecost Day, some 3,000 people, and Luke said in verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 5 verse 14, Luke said, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Who then are the believers he's talking about? Is he just talking about a generic belief? No, he's talking about people that have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine. So what, what did they do? In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, when he said the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, he's going back to Acts chapter 2 and saying, what did they do? They believed in Jesus as the Son of God. They repented of sin. They confessed His name. They were baptized into Christ. And what did the Lord do? And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Look, that's what they did then. That's what we must do now. God's Word hasn't changed. Psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. That's not about it. That's it. Now, people can say, you know what, that's too absolute for how I want to live. Too narrow-minded, too archaic. Look, not my call. My responsibility is to simply preach this book. Nothing more, nothing less. If the day ever comes that I'm not going to preach this book, then I need to take my shingle down. Because I only have authority to preach truth. Paul said, preach the Word. Leave everything else alone. So I want to ask you today, when we talk about this marvelous plan of redemption, you need to understand this redemptive plan was created for you. You. God specifically designed this plan with you in mind. In a world of some 7 to 8 billion people, sometimes we get lost in numbers, don't we? And, and, you know, you think about how many people live on planet Earth. And we become a number, a statistic. We're not a number, and we're not a statistic to God. 
We are a human being made in His image and likeness. And what the Bible is saying is, you are very special. You're so special that, that God in heaven gave His Son with you in mind. So I want to close by saying this. If you say no to God's Son, you will be lost over heaven's objection. God's desire is that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God's not interested in anybody living apart from Him. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. He demonstrated that on the cross. I don't know what else He could do. So, question of this hour is, if you're not a child of God, will you do what the Bible outlines for you to do to become one of His children. You will be adopted into the family of God. You will be a part of God's household, His family. And God will be your Father. Great concept. If you haven't obeyed the gospel today, I encourage you to do what they did. Just as I said a moment ago, Acts chapter 2, they repented of sin, they were baptized into Christ, God put them in the church. If you're here today and maybe you're not faithful to His cause and you need the prayers of the church, look, we'd be happy to pray with you and for you as we stand to sing for your...